yeah, it's, it's hard when like, I wish, I wish universities were hiring more, more faculty instead of, you know, adjuncts and lecturers to fill these positions. But you know, this is just the state of the market right now. And I mean, like you said, and then positions aren't paid well either. Um, and yeah. that's also something that people have to, like, I wish we didn't have to think about money, but we do. And that's also something that's important to consider. Yeah, I make three times my postdoc salary now. Um, and yeah. I posted that on Twitter in September and kind of broke academic Twitter. It's definitely like not something that people like to talk about, but it's something that yeah. we should definitely talk about more. Hey folks, thank you for tuning into the Grad School Sucks podcast, the show for grad students who want to survive grad school and thrive in their career afterwards. I'm your host, Matt Carlson, and today I'm talking with Dr. Ashley Ruba. Ashley is a formerly NIH-funded research fellow who now has a career in user experience research at Meta Reality Labs. Ashley joins the podcast to talk about how toxic positivity in conversations about the academic job market is ultimately unhelpful, how she landed a UXR job making over three times her postdoc salary, and why grad students, particularly in the social sciences, should consider UXR as a potential career option. This is a great episode for folks who need to hear the inside story of just how competitive the academic job market is and for anyone who's interested in the UXR space. Be sure to rate and review the podcast if you liked today's episode. And without further ado, let's get to the interview. Well, Ashley, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah. I'm so excited to talk to you and uh, hear about your career journey. Before we get started, if you could, could you tell everyone just a little bit about who you are, introduce yourself, and um, tell folks how they can follow along in your journey? Yeah, so I'm, I'm Ashley, and I got my PhD in developmental psychology from the University of Washington three years ago, and I'm currently a UX researcher at Meta Reality Labs, and what I, what I do in my free time is help other academics make a very similar career transition to what I made. And people can follow me on Twitter and LinkedIn um, under, under my name, Ashley Ruba. And I often post about that career transition and giving advice and resources and all of that. That's awesome. Yeah. And before we jump into your story, I do just want to underscore your content on LinkedIn uh, is how I found you. And I, you know, I read through a couple things and I was like, oh my God, this is so valuable. And I literally have made earmarks of things to do to my resume, things to do to my website based on some of your content. So make sure to follow Ashley on LinkedIn. I'll have a link to it in the um, description of this episode. So, but let's jump in, Ashley. Why did you originally go to grad school? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, so my parents didn't go to college. And so they, from the time I was really young, they always told me, you know, like, you're going to, you're going to go to college, like you and your sister are going to go to college. And so there was never a question that I was at least going to get my bachelor's, but I really liked school. And I kind of just wanted to be in school forever. So even when I was a really young kid, I, I wanted to get a PhD, like I wanted to I didn't know what in, but I just wanted to be in school forever because I really liked learning. And then um, I decided that I wanted to study psychology when I kind of had the unfortunate experience when I was in high school, a friend of mine died by suicide. And so I really wanted to go into psychology, be a clinical psychologist. And so I went into undergrad. I did my bachelor's at Duke. So I went in knowing that I wanted to study psych and I started doing research in a developmental psychology lab that was studying infant language development of all things and became super fascinated by babies and how quickly babies learn language. And that ultimately translated into just a love of research. Like once I actually got into the lab and was doing research, I decided that this was actually what I was really passionate about and what I wanted to do. And then that's how I ended up doing my PhD in developmental psychology um, because I had some very specific questions surrounding how infants learn about other people's emotions that I really wanted to explore. And then that's how, that's how I ended up doing a PhD and going into grad school. I really wanted to do research and 
And then I was also told that if I really liked research, then I should be a professor. So that was what I went through basically like 10 years of my life, like wanting to be a tenure track faculty member at an R1 um, was my career goal. Yep. Yep. And how did you, uh, how would you describe your experience in grad school? I actually had a really great experience in grad school, which maybe surprises people given that I, you know, talk about some of the things that are wrong with academia pretty often. But I think that's credited to, I had a really amazing graduate advisor, Betty Repicoli. She was super, super supportive and really gave me a lot of autonomy to explore these questions that I had about how babies learn about other people's emotions. And so, yeah, I had I had a really supportive advisor, which I think is the number one thing that will make or break your grad school experience. It doesn't matter how talented you are. If you have an advisor who's not supportive, you may not make it through the program. And that's just that's just the reality yeah. of the situation. But I really um, I don't know. I'm like I'm a nerd. I feel like everyone who gets a Ph.D. is like kind of a nerd. And it was really fun to just like dig into this research topic that I found super fascinating for five years. And yeah, I learned a lot about how to conduct rigorous research and how to, you know, and and I feel like my writing was pretty solid when I got in there, but it got even better. And yeah, I had a, I had a pretty good experience overall. Um, Definitely some bumps along the way, but like a pretty good experience. Yeah. When you were a grad student, did you ever consider industry as a career option or were you dead set 100% on the tenure track life? Uh, I was pretty dead set on it until my fourth year of grad school when I actually sat on a faculty search committee in my department. So I saw the process from the other side. We were hiring someone for a developmental psych faculty position and seeing, you know, I think we had 150 people apply for one spot and just seeing the process of taking this you know, the stack of amazingly talented PhDs and trying to whittle it down to 20 and then whittle it down to three and then having three people come out and then pick one, the decisions became at times arbitrary or, you know, there wasn't like everyone is just amazingly qualified. And when you get down to 20 people, you could Mm -hmm. pick any single one of these people and they would do an amazing job. And so at that point, I feel like the imposter syndrome really set in and I was like, we, we, cross people off this list who had CVs that were better than mine. And so there's no way I'm going to get a faculty job. So then at that point, um, I was doing my PhD in Seattle. And the only like career that I really knew that people went into was UX. Um, because being in Seattle, it was becoming a pretty popular career option. So I explored that a little bit. But then I ended up applying for a postdoctoral fellowship, um, and it was an NIH T32. It was the only mm. fellowship that I applied for, and I told myself, you know, if I if I get this really prestigious fellowship, which I won't get because, like, why would I be the one to get this fellowship? Sure. Um, then I'll take it and I'll you know keep writing this out. And if I don't, then I'll move into tech. And then I got the fellowship, and then I ended up continuing to be in academia for three more years. Yeah. Very interesting. Um, so I, I think for any grad students listening who have career aspirations of being in academia, sitting on a committee that goes through that selection process is so informative. Um, I I don't think I was a student on one. I think I was, was on one when I was a research scientist. But it was to actually see like the decisions that get made and you know the things that get valued and the amount of people who are so awesome Um, yeah yeah it was it was really eye-opening and and yeah it was a very very clarifying to know that um and you know i i i applied for faculty jobs a year ago um and you know didn't didn't get any interviews from that i mean and you can look at my cv you can see Mm -hmm. like (laughs) you can see what my cv looks like and i think that's just um it just speaks to how competitive the job market has become, especially after yeah. COVID um, and universities just aren't, there just aren't enough jobs for everyone. And so the decisions become, you know, um, it can come down to maybe you're really successful, but your research area just isn't what the department's looking for. And that says nothing about your qualities as a researcher at all. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just, 
it's just a really hard field to be in. And it's kind of, it's like winning the lottery. Like you're really like gambling and trying to win the lottery in some ways. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I hope I haven't told this story on the podcast, but (laughs) early on in my uh, time as a PhD student, before I really got an assessment of like what the job market was actually like, uh, I had a friend who was doing a PhD in philosophy of all Mm -hmm. things um, at the same institution at UGA. And his department had an open uh, lecturer position. I think it was a 5-5. Um, oh, and it was, no. paying, <laughs> it was paying like 55 grand a year. Oh, my gosh. And he, he either was on the selection committee as the student or his mentor was on the selection committee and like giving him information. There were over 400 applications mm-hmm. for that position. And yeah. like probably half or more were well qualified. Oh, and um, yeah, that was the first time when I was like, Oh, wow, maybe this is a, a lot more competitive than I thought it would be. Yeah, it's, it's competitive for sure. Uh, I mean, and there's obviously like, thresholds for, you know, I mean, when we were doing the selection criteria, we had some threshold for like number of first author publications, that was like an initial screen. Yeah. Um, but then, you know, so many people pass that initial screen. And then what do you end up making decisions? based off of at that point. Um, and it's, you know, it's just a really hard and competitive process, but then there's just also a lot of really amazing PhDs out there doing really cool stuff and there just aren't, the jobs just don't exist. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, uh, to not make any of our (laughs) tenure track, hopeful grad students, even more squeamish, we can move on. Um, yeah, I, I think they you... they should be a little squeamish. I think a healthy amount of squeamishness yeah. is good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think so. I I, uh, I I've made content for a couple of years. I mostly make memes. You know, you oh. make like real serious like I, takeaways no, I, I, and all I've these made, awesome I've things. I made some memes <laughs> on Twitter. I feel like those were my first few like pretty popular posts were like academic memes. So yeah. I, I I do some memes sometimes. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, that's fun. I like how they can communicate a lot with just like a few words. Yeah. But um, back when I was making my account, I was making a lot of memes about like, you know, the job market sucks more than a lot of you realize it does. And I had a lot of people push back on that and ask for like optimism, more or less. And uh, yeah, I I think I get like when you're in the trenches, like you kind of need that optimism to like keep going and not give up. And I think there is a lot of value in that. But I mean, I agree with what you said. I think at some point you have to like look the devil in the face and see actually what's going on. Um, And the academic job market produces, I think, 20 PhDs for every one academic position that will ever open. Yeah, I, um, I, I believe yeah. that. And I, you know, I'm someone who kind of more on Twitter had been accused over the past year of being too negative about academia um, and, you know, the job market and to being like discouraging to people. But it's I mean, it's just like the reality of the situation. And, you know, I wish it was I wish it was different. I really like I really wanted a tenure track faculty job. Like that's why I stayed in the field for 10 years. That's why I worked so hard. And it's a. Uh, yeah, it's it's hard when like I wish I wish universities were hiring more more faculty instead of you know adjuncts and lecturers to fill these positions. But you know this is just the state of the market right now. And I mean, like you said, and then positions aren't paid well either. Um, and yeah. that's also something that people have to like. I wish we didn't have to think about money, but we do, and that's also something that's important to consider. Yeah. Yeah, I make more now than I did as a research scientist for a fraction of the responsibility. Oh yeah, no, I, and, I uh, make it was eye opening. Yeah, yeah, I make three times my postdoc salary now, um, and yeah. I posted that on Twitter in September and kind of broke academic Twitter. It's definitely like not something that people like to talk about, but it's something that yeah. we should definitely talk about more. Yep, absolutely. Um, so let's let's move into you. You got the T thirty two. Incredibly competitive. Um, what was your time like as a as a T thirty two postdoc? It was a weird time because I started my postdoc in September twenty nineteen, so six Ooh, months before okay. COVID happened. And so I like came in. I was like super gung ho. I had all of these research plans, and I started 
piloting my first study in March 2022 in 2020. Um, so like a week before my university completely shut down operations. Mm. And so I went from, you know, I was going to be giving invited toxic conferences in universities and I had planned to apply for jobs in 2020 at the end of 2020. That was going to be my first year on the academic job market. And then COVID really just decimated like all of my plans. And I had to move all of my research online, which I had never, I was working with preschoolers at that point. So I feel like that's a whole other thing and trying to take studies that you were doing in person and moving them online with kids. And this was just a big problem that a lot of developmental psychologists were facing. Um, so I think up until that point, I was having like a pretty good time. <laughs> um, and, yeah. you know, like in, in during COVID, like I, I published a lot of papers. Like I was able to publish all of my work from grad school. I wrote like four review papers um, and ultimately, you know, finished my postdoc with 15 first author publications because it's just what I did during COVID was Damn. I just, I just wrote because that was my way of like dealing with the stress of the world collapsing around me and my career yeah. kind of collapsing around me as well. Um, but, but yeah, it was definitely really hard and super isolating because I had also just moved to Madison, Wisconsin, which I had never visited. I'd never lived in the Midwest, never even visited Madison when I moved there. So I didn't really have any friends and it was really, I mean, COVID was really hard and isolating for a lot of people, but I feel like especially mm. me having just moved, it was really hard. Um, and that was, you know, part of the reason I ended up leaving my fellowship early was I just was really, after two and a half years, was just like really unhappy and needed to do something different. Yeah. So what did you do next after your fellowship? Um, yeah, so it was actually Christmas of 2021 when I, you know, kind of decided that, you know, I'm, I'm done. I like, I can't, mm -hmm. I can't go in the job market again. It was like super stressful and. Sorry, my my dog is being a, a menace. Come here. Oh no, you're fine. <laughs> um, yeah. So it was. So I decided, you know, I'm I'm gonna quit. Like I'm gonna do something else. And like I don't know what I'm gonna do, but like I can't keep doing this anymore. And I knew that I really liked research. Um, and I think, I so I basically just applied to like every research position I could. I had I did like a lot of things wrong in my job search and the way the reason I moved into UX was it was just the first job offer I had. It was at a consulting company mm. called Bold Insight and it was actually a really great first job and I learned a lot, but I I had applied to, you know, behavioral scientists, physicians, people scientists, research scientists in tech, more in like child development, um all over the place just really wanting to get out of my postdoc and kind of move on with my life and do something new. Um, so that's, so I ended up in UX kind of accidentally. And then in my first UX job realized um, we did, we were doing a, we were a consultant um, firm. So we were doing a project with a tech company and I was like, Oh, I really like working in tech. Like this is super cool. Um, and then I, at that point, like, I was living in North Carolina and really wanted to move back to Seattle. And so I applied to this job at Meta kind of on a whim. And then I got the, and then I got the job and then it's been, yeah, this is, this is like exactly the kind of work that I had wanted to be doing on like on hardware and like new tech. Yeah. And it's just been super cool. That's awesome. Um, can we back up just a little bit and go back to, so you're, Decision to no longer apply to academic jobs. Yeah. Um, was there like a specific moment you realized it? Um, what yeah. was that like? Yeah. I, so I I had applied for a few jobs and I, you know, was checking the, the psych jobs wiki and saw, and, you know, I just, I saw that the jobs that I had applied for had already sent out like interview invites and stuff. And I knew that I wasn't. I wasn't getting an interview here. I'm going to, I'm going to create my dog really quick. Yeah. Do your thing. Okay. Um, yeah. So I'll back up. So yeah, so I had, I had applied for some faculty positions and, you know, who's checking the, there's like a psych jobs wiki where it has, you know, all the jobs and it's like a crowdsource thing where people will post updates on like, Oh, I was invited to an interview and things like that. And so at, at some point in December, it kind of became clear that the jobs I'd applied for were, I wasn't yeah. getting interviews with them. And so at that point, 
I had to make a decision of, am I going to stay in my postdoc for another year plus, apply for jobs again, or am I just going to leave? Um, mm -hmm. And I just really couldn't, I was a third year postdoc. I couldn't stomach the idea of being a fourth year postdoc, even though I had actually just submitted a K99 application. I like really thought about doing a fourth or a fifth year of a postdoc. Um, but I was just so, I was just so tired and like really unhappy and mm. being on the job market. I like, I have an anxiety disorder and it was really, really hard for me and I didn't want to put myself through that again. Um, so yeah, there was just a moment where I was like, I don't, I'm not happy and I don't have to do this anymore. Um, yeah. so I, I opted out. Yeah. Yeah. I feel, I, I ask about that specifically cause I feel like that's, I think for a lot of grad students, there's like, we spend so much time like building towards that academic career mm -hmm. that it almost feels like we're like, you know, leaving a community or leaving a calling or leaving like a lot behind. Um, did you feel anything like that at that time? And then how would you contrast that to how you feel now? Oh, for sure. There was like a lot of grief involved for sure. Um, especially, you know, I just, I put, I'd been doing research and like building this research program of mine for like over 10 years. I had, you know, I'd won multiple awards. I'd published a bunch of papers. I was like really establishing myself as an expert in this like niche area of developmental psych. And it did feel like I was leaving a lot behind. And I had all of these research ideas where I'm like, you know, if I don't do them, like no one's going to do them. But yeah. then also like, what does that say about, you know, the state of academic research? Like if my, if my ideas were like that impactful, like a mm. bunch of people should be doing them. Um, but yeah, there was definitely a lot of like sadness and I, but I think at the same time, I was just, I was just so tired and unhappy that I just was ready to try something new. Um, and I didn't really know like, what to expect on the other side of it. I think it was also compounded by, you know, every time I like told a faculty member that I was like leaving, it was like, Oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. So it was just, it was like a lot of, um, a lot of like sadness from them. And then I'm like, Oh, should yeah. I feel, should I feel sorry for leaving? Um, and so I feel like that was, that was hard as well. But then once I started my like first UX job, I was just so happy to like be doing something new. And what I realized over the course of the past year is the thing that I like the most is doing research and doing research mm. in uh, like kind of challenging or ambiguous problem spaces. I think that's really why I like new tech and the same, it's a similar reason why I liked studying babies. It's the same reason I like studying tech. It's just really challenging like a complex research problem and I just really like the research process more than like any specific topic I think I mean I'm still like fascinated by babies yeah. and I'm actually going to be a discussant at um, a conference in March the big child development conference some of my friends are submitting a symposium and they're like oh do you want to be to discuss it I'm like sure like we'll see if this gets accepted and it was accepted awesome. so i'll be i'll be ma i'll be making my way back into academia a little bit at that point but um but yeah it's uh i think you never really know what you'll like until you try it and then once i was in ux i'm like oh wow this is this is really fun and i'm actually like paid and valued for my work which is yeah. great <laughs> yeah is that conference i'm just curious is that srcd it is srcd yeah oh very cool okay um, something you said earlier about like how it, we can, we'll, we can move on from this in a, whenever. Um, but something you said kind of struck me about like how, like when you tell people you're leaving academia mm -hmm. there, there, it's almost like there's like a, like the, the people inside academia, like it is viewed as kind of like. I don't know. I, I'm probably using too strong a language, like a failure or a divorce, mm -hmm. or like you're leaving the cult, so to speak. Oh, for sure. And I, uh, th there were quite a few people who like left academia when I was um, a grad student, and there was oftentimes like 
a lack of conversation about like what they went on to do, what the value of that was, what people could do outside mm-hmm. of academia. And I was in family therapy as a, as a therapist for a number of years. And one of the things that we often talked about is like the role of family secrets mm-hmm. and how family secrets, you know, maybe like dad's an alcoholic, but we, mm-hmm. we just don't talk about it. Um, family secrets really just like suck out like all the positive emotion um, in a family. And they're almost like a black hole or gravity well that just kind of like, like sucks out all this potential life. And I think the longer I was in academia, the more I kind of felt like there were these kind of like conversations that people didn't want to have because it didn't reinforce what the system valued something like that. But no, yeah, absolutely. And I think, I mean, a a story that comes to mind is when I was, I I submitted a a K99 and I got an ND, like it was not discussed. So it didn't even score in the top Mm. like 50th percent. Um, and I remember just being so devastated about it because I had worked so hard on it. And then I was talking to one of my advisors. She's like, oh yeah, that's like super common. I'm like, why didn't, like, why didn't you tell me this? Like, why didn't you, I was like so devastated. And then it turned out that she was like, I just didn't want to like discourage you. So I think there's some stuff like that where you just don't hear like how, how hard it is. And, you know, I experienced this as a grad student when I was trying to get my work published and just getting hit with rejection after rejection. And I just didn't know that this was just how things are. And like reviewers were going to be really mean and I shouldn't take things personally, but like I was taking things personally and it was really Mm -hmm. just like really hard. Um, and I don't know. I was also someone who was told for like my whole career that I was going to be one of the ones who like made it and would get like a faculty job and without people being really honest with me about what the state of the job market was and how it didn't really, like I could work as hard as I wanted to. And that was not going to guarantee that I would get a job anywhere. Yeah. Well, professors and universities need grad students. <laughs> this is very, this is very true, and I think, um, I think this, uh, you know, after I had been posting stuff on Twitter for the past year, and I think a lot of the most negative feedback that I've gotten from some of my posts have been from professors, and I think it's hard to say anything critical about academia, especially once you've left, because it just it can be seen as like a personal attack on your career, sure. and I think especially when you have when you have tenure, like you have it all, you're at the top, like you have job Mm -hmm. security and you don't have like a boss quote unquote, which I would, I would like argue with that a little bit, but, um, but yeah, there's definitely some, there's a lot of stuff that just like, isn't really talked about in academia because, you know, people, people need grad students, people need postdocs and it's all like super cheap labor at the end of the day. Yep. Grant's got to get, uh, the workers to do the work. Yeah. Um, but let's transition into UXR, happier okay. conversations. Yeah. Um, could you, so I, I did a poll on Instagram a little while ago. Do you know Greg? Greg, um, oh shit, I'm not going to remember his last name. <laughs> anyway, I think you were mutual contacts on, okay. uh, on LinkedIn, but I, I, I talked with Greg last week. Um, he's also in UXR. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was previously a English professor, uh, and he had tenure and then he mm-hmm. left to go into UXR. Um, and, but most of my followers had basically either never heard of UXR, um, or only knew the definition, didn't know like the application of it. So if you could tell us a little bit about like, what is UXR generally? And then maybe more specifically, like what is your specific world of UXR about? Yeah. So UXR is user experience research. And so I had actually never heard about it until maybe three years ago. And at that point, I think it was still a pretty new career field for PhDs in the social science, social sciences. Um, but it's interesting that I like your poll, a lot of people hadn't heard of it because I feel like it gets a lot of, um, I think especially for like tech UXR, I feel like it gets a lot of hate from at least like in the social sciences for being like, Oh, you've like sold out, like you've moved into UX. Yeah. Um, and so I've definitely like gotten some of that feedback, especially cause I'm at, uh, I'm at meta. Um, so it's yeah. like this, this like big, like alt act, like boogeyman or something. But, 
Um, so, but basically the field of UX has been around since the early nineties and it was actually, um, the first UX researchers were at Apple. And so if you've ever used an iPhone or a Mac, you know that they're like really, they're products that are really easy to use. And they're, I mean, I'm, I'm a Mac person and I find them to be really intuitive. And that's because they're researchers who have tested these products and these features with actual people who are going to be using the products to make sure that the features are things that people want. They're easy to use. They're intuitive and things like that. And so that's essentially what I'm doing in my job. And so I work at Meta Reality Labs, which used to be, it's essentially like Oculus. And so I'm working on in the research and development side of Oculus. So all of the stuff that I'm working out is still five to 10 years out from being an actual consumer product that you could buy in a store. Mm. And so this, all of the projects that I'm working on are pretty like early stages and trying to figure out, you know, there's a bunch of companies that are building augmented reality glasses. So glasses that will have, you know, eye tracking and displays and things like that. And we're trying to figure out, you know, what features do people actually want? Like what, if we're like building this new tech, like what are things that people are going to find useful? Um, what are, what are needs that we can meet with this new kind of technology? And then when we're adding features into this tech, are they easy to use? Can people pick up these features really quickly? How do people want them to look? And so most of what I do during the day is just, I'm just doing research. So I'm meeting with teams. Like, so I, I work a lot with the audio team and the displays teams at reality labs and the eye tracking team and picking up, you know, what is like the, the newest tech that they're working on and all of these different pillars. And then actually going out and testing them with people who might be using this tech in the future. And so I'm managing most of what I do is like very similar to my, my role as a, uh, like a more senior grad student or a postdoc where I'm managing multiple mm. projects at once. I'm designing studies, collecting data, analyzing data, writing reports, presenting my findings. It's just at a much faster time scale. So instead of doing projects for years, <laughs> which is what I did in academia, especially working with infants, it would, could take three years start to finish from like, I have an idea to now the paper is published. I'm doing the stuff in the span of a few months. Um, so it's like super fast paced and all of the work that I do feels very impactful where I have an answer and I can go back to the designers and engineers and tell them, you know, this is what people really liked this feature. People hated this. Like, this is what we should do in the future. And it feels really nice to have that kind of like value in my work or to see that value in my work and to mm. see that impact. Um, it's something that I didn't necessarily get in my academic research yeah what would you say are like your favorite aspects of your job in uxr yeah like i said i really like the pace of it it's it's like really fast paced and i i love that as someone who spent a lot of time doing very very slow paced developmental psych research i also like how collaborative it is i feel like in so when I was a grad student, I was the only person in my lab. We didn't have a lab manager. There were no other grad students. So it was very much just like me. And mm. I feel like it was, there weren't like a lot of people to bounce ideas off of. And it was similar, like during my postdoc, it was during COVID most of the time. So I also felt you're just like in these little academic silos. Um, but here it feels a lot more like a team effort. And I'm working with multiple people, even though like I'm the researcher on the team. So I have a lot of authority to be like, this is how I want to design and run the study. Um, but I am always collaborating and chatting with, you know, project, product managers and designers and engineers to figure out, you know, what research questions do we want to test and like always bouncing ideas off of them. So I like the collaborative nature of it as well. And I think, like I said, also the impact is really nice. I think in academia, I'd, you know, I'd publish a paper and then think, at that point, and I'm like, I'm so sick of looking at the paper because I've been working on the paper and reviews for like years and it would go out into the world. And I'm like, okay, I guess I'm moving on to the next thing. I'm like, is anyone going to read this? Like, does anyone care? Yeah. And in my job, it's very much like people like they do care. And <laughs> my work like has very clear impacts. And, you know, if I, if I found that people hated a feature, like that could completely kill the feature. Um, we could stop working on it or vice versa. If I found that if I had some signal that people really liked, you know, a particular feature that we were working on, like that could, like we could move in that direction. So it feels like I really am shaping 
the direction of research at my company in a way that I just, I didn't really have that same impact in academia. Yeah. Um, so I, I've only recently learned about UXR. I think you're, you're the second or third person I've talked to in the mm -hmm. field. And that's just been in the last like two or three months. Okay. Um, I've known about UX design for, I don't know, maybe a year or two, whenever I was mm -hmm. starting to investigate, like, what am I doing with my life now that I'm leaving academia? Yeah. Um, and I know that U UX researchers work often hand in hand with designers, or there's some kind of iterative process between them. Could you talk a little bit about, uh, like, what it's like to work with designers and how that works? Yeah, so, at you know, bigger companies like Meta, the UX designers and the UX researchers are they're two different roles. At smaller companies, they tend to, the uh, UX researchers tend to not be a separate role. And the people who are actually doing the designing are actually doing the research on their own designs. But I think it's it's nice at the larger companies to actually, you know, I, I am like the researcher and I work with designers. And so the designers will, you know, they'll come to me with something that they're working on and they might have, you know, like a loose question, like things they want to to look at or test with users and I'll work with them to figure out, you know, what are the clear research questions that we want to answer? What method is best to do like to actually test these questions? And then I'm the one who goes out and actually does the research. And it's really nice that meta because we have research assistants that help me collect the data. I actually really don't like collecting data. It's always been my least mm. favorite part of the research process. I'm much more interested in kind of the higher level, designing studies or analyzing data, writing reports and that kind of thing. But actually like getting in there and collecting the data was never, never my favorite thing to do. So I am very fortunate to work with like a bunch of amazing RAs who help me collect the data. Um, and then I go back and end up analyzing the data and writing the report and then going back to the designers and, um, you know, showing like, you know, here's what I found and like, here's what I recommend that we do next. Um, which is, I think one thing that surprised me is how, how often I have to explain statistics, which is not something that I, um, I never thought of myself as a stats person, but being, I am in like a mixed methods position and I'm because, and I think like most UX research tends to be pretty qualitative heavy, which I didn't appreciate when I went into the field, but having a stats background and, and being able to program stats in R has actually been a really valuable skill, but I still find myself having to explain, you know, what does a confidence interval mean? And like, if I'm, if I'm, if we're plotting these bars on a graph, like just because one mean is higher than another mean, if the confidence intervals like overlap and they're not statistically significant different from each other and so having to explain stats um it's been something that i didn't expect that i would need to be doing but like makes sense if you're talking to people who don't have a research background or a stats background so that's been kind of a fun experience to figure out like how can i explain my research in a way for like non non-stats people and non-researchers mm -hmm. in a way that makes sense yeah oh that's so interesting what other things have you found in your role that are like surprising to you? Yeah, I think um, one of the the big, so I just finished like my first couple of projects at Meta and it was definitely a weird time because I joined at the end of September and then there were all of the layoffs, which I'm sure mm -hmm. like you and everyone heard about in November. And so that, I think that was like pretty destabilizing. Like someone on my team was impacted by the layoffs and so in some ways I was kind of like thrown into the deep end with having to lead projects. And then we were also, you know, working with team, like different teams in reality labs and having to coordinate across teams. So there was definitely like the resources were shifting all the time. The personnel were shifting all the time and having to be like, I need to get these projects done by the end of the year. And like, I just need to figure it out. Um, and I think having my, my team lead and my manager just like give a lot of trust in me and be like, you know, like you can do this. And if you like, let us know if you need help, that's something that I, I don't know. I never really like felt in academia. Like I had a lot of authority and like a lot of trust and they just, you know, it was like a really hard and like difficult time to navigate. And I don't, I, like I said, I really like challenging research spaces. So it mm. was, it was hard, but it was also like, you know, it wasn't boring. Like it was, it was yeah. fun. Um, but I definitely, um, I think because of the pace of UX, I didn't 
um, I think like in academic research, there's a lot more time to like sit down and think about like, okay, what is like the ideal way to run the study? Like, let me pilot it for months. And in tech, mm-hmm. it's like, no, you're just, you're just constantly like having to deal with shifting resources and priorities and having to trust your gut. And it's at that, that's part has been like really nice, but I didn't expect that the research process would be like that necessarily. Yeah. Very cool. So I have some, some questions, um, some like specifically about jobs, some about the transition from grad school to industry. Uh, was there anything about your current role that we didn't go over that you wanted to mention or talk about before we jump into other questions? I don't, I don't think so. Um, I guess the, the only thing is like, I, so I am like technically a contractor, um, so I'm not full time at Meta, but I think the really nice thing about Reality Labs is I'm not necessarily treated like a contractor. I think at some other companies, there is mm-hmm. more of a, like a hierarchy distinction between like, oh, you're, you're a contractor, like you're not full time. Um, but that's something yeah. I've really appreciated about my role in particular. And I think it's also, um, as like a first job, it's really hard to get a full-time position unless you've done an internship, like right out of grad school at one of the big tech companies, it's much easier to get a contract position. Um, and I have, I know multiple friends where their contracts converted to full-time or they like moved to another company and got full-time there. So I would just, I think like, uh, pl- plug that, like having a contract position is a good way to get your foot in the door. Um, for UX, if if that is an option that's available, um, and yeah, because other otherwise it's it's really hard to break into UX at one of the bigger companies if you have no product experience at all, and that's I think the key yeah. skill that I've had to learn over the past like seven months is just product development because I knew nothing about it like going into going into the field. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so the first question from Instagram is, uh, what kind of grad students are a good fit for UXR roles? And in, in, when I say what kind, um, more specifically, like from what fields, mm-hmm. like what fields do you think are a good fit? Yeah, so definitely any of the social sciences. So psychology, sociology, anthropology, political science. Like I said, uh, UXR tends to be pretty qualitative focused. So if you have experience doing interviews or observations, basically being able to take uh, like quotes from people, like do thematic analysis, ethnographies and things like that. Um, Like that's like usability studies are really like the bread and butter of UXR. Um, So I say like any, anyone who has a social sciences background and has done research with human subjects is a pretty good fit um, for UXR. And I think it's also important to note that um, like most UX researchers don't actually have like a grad degree. Like it's a lot of like mm. bachelor level. There, there is some like pay mm-hmm. differential when you have a master's versus a master's or a PhD versus a bachelor's. But um, yeah, most UX researchers didn't go to grad school. Like they just kind of found they were like, um, you know, bachelor level psych people who just kind of like found their way into the field. But I do think that PhDs have very valuable skills that um, are very marketable and a good fit for these roles, too. Yeah. Well, following on that, what uh, specific skills do you think grad students uh, should hone while they're in grad school if they want to go into UXR? Yeah, so I would definitely... So skill, so for skills, definitely focusing on qualitative research. There are, like I said, my my positions mix methods, and there are more like quant UX positions that are popping up. And so for those positions, you are going to want to have some like a more heavy stats background, being able to program stats in R or Python, and also being really solid on survey design and metrics. And those like that's more of the quant UXR roles. Um, but I I like mixed methods, and so I think like having a stats background and knowing R or, or Python, if that's what you prefer to program in is really valuable. Other than that, I think my, the biggest skills are communication and public speaking, especially being able to communicate your findings to people who are like outside of your area of expertise. Because like I said, a lot of what I do is talking to designers or engineers who are not researchers. So I have to be able to communicate my results really clearly 
And then along with that also comes technical writing and being able to write super succinctly. So our reports are not, you know, as much as I loved writing 30 page research papers, and I wrote a lot of them. Our reports are like PowerPoint slide decks. And you have to remember that you have people's attention like very briefly. And so you have to be super succinct with, you know, here are our findings, like this is what we did. Um, and that's a skill that you hone over time is just how to write um, concisely. And so the, those are the big skills, I think. But for grad students, I always, always recommend doing an internship. Like that is the number one thing that you mm. can do to prepare yourself for a career in UXR or in any, in any field that you're interested in, because the biggest barrier to breaking into the field is not having experience. And an internship actually gives you the thing that you need, which is experience. Um, and I know, and I know people who had internships in grad school who were able to go right into full-time roles, like right after they graduated. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, so, well, for current grad students, how can they be looking for these kind of internships? Mm -hmm. um, Cause that, that's a, that's an interesting concept to me. Yeah. Um, get on LinkedIn. <laughs> that's not something I did when I was a grad student, but, yeah, and too. I, and I used, I used to be a LinkedIn hater, but I'm not, I'm not anymore. Now I'm like very much like on the LinkedIn train. Um, so I would make a profile and start, you know, connect, connecting with other people. I started connecting with alumni in my program to start. And then I also just started messaging other people who had developmental psych PhDs who had moved into UXR. Cause I also, just wanted to talk to people who had a similar research background as me to make sure that, you know, they liked their job and this would like potentially be a good fit for me. And so you can mm -hmm. definitely start like forming those connections on LinkedIn right now as a grad student. Um, and then that's also how I found all of the jobs that I applied for and a bunch of internships as well. So you can set up alerts for internships and then, um, like if you, if you follow, if you follow me on LinkedIn, every time I see an internship that's in, that's either for like social sciences PhDs or that seems like it'd be like a, like a good PhD internship for people who follow me. I always repost it. Um, so that's another way that you can keep up with these internships, but all of the big tech companies, for example, have internships um, every summer. So like Google has summer internships, Meta has internships year round. Um, Apple has internships. So if you're interested in UXR, like all the big tech companies have them and then a bunch of like smaller companies have them as well, but that's definitely what I would recommend doing is just getting on LinkedIn and searching, searching for them and setting up alerts and things like that. Yeah. Makes a lot of sense. And while you're on LinkedIn, you should follow <laughs> Ashley uh, and you can find a link to her profile in the description of this episode. Um, so internships, it sounds like that's a great idea for grad students. Mm -hmm. What about folks who are, uh, let's say they've graduated from their PhD or master's program. Maybe they're in a postdoc or they're in a teaching role mm -hmm. or they're in a research scientist role, or maybe they're even a professor and they're looking to make a switch over to UXR. Mm -hmm. um, what are the steps that they should be thinking about in order to do that? Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a good question. Um, so I think the first, the person I always recommend going to is Darren Hood. So Darren Hood has a really excellent mm. blog, but also a podcast. And I think the first thing is just to teach yourself as much as you can about like UXR, because there's a lot to learn. It's, you know, it's a science, just like psychology is a science. And just like I spent years studying developmental psych to become an expert. Like there's so much to learn about UXR in terms of the methods and the research process and things like that. And also product development. So Darren Hood has, you know, I'm currently working through the backlog of his podcasts and I just learned mm. so much. He's been in the field for over 20 years. So he's kind of seen it like grow and change over time. And so I really trust that he's an expert um, and knows what he's talking about. And then he also has a bunch of book recommendations as well. Um, and so I, I've like read a lot of books about UX research. Um, I've read books about product development and it's what I tell PhDs all the time is like, you're an expert learner. Like you can teach yourself anything like UX isn't, mm. it, it's not so different than psychology or like a social sciences research background. Um, and then from there, again, just like getting on LinkedIn, starting to network with people. And I think I was like pretty, 
lucky and that I, my first UX job was a true entry level position. Um, and I, I learned a lot in the three months I was there, but then I also felt like I grew out of the role really quickly. And then that's how I was able to pivot mm. to meta so quickly after that is I just, you know, I, I like learned a lot in my first role. So you may also have to accept that, you know, the first, the first job you get is always going to be the hardest to get. It may be, mm. uh, more of an entry level position than you want, which I think is hard for PhDs when you're used to, you know, having a lot, maybe like a lot of autonomy and stuff, but like sometimes you're like switching in a completely new field. Like you might have to start at the bottom yeah. and like, that's okay, but you're going to progress super fast um, because you're a PhD and you've, you know how to learn things really quickly. Um, there's, and there's ways where you can, you can like volunteer to get UXR experience. Um, but I think the biggest thing is just making sure that, your resume is like really solid for UXR positions and being able to mm. network and get referrals for positions and understanding that you're probably not going to get a full-time offer at like one of the big tech companies as your first job. Um, I was talking to a recruiter at Meta before I ended up working there and he was saying he had a really hard time placing people into full-time positions unless they had at least a year of product experience. And so that's just that's just how it is when you're switching fields. Yeah. But there, there are definitely, I never made a portfolio, um, but I know that people have made portfolios to illustrate the methods that they've used. But I think that mm -hmm. having a solid resume and networking can go like pretty far in like getting your foot in the door to UXR positions and just, in, just like engaging in content on LinkedIn and like engaging with people who are, who are hiring on LinkedIn. Yep. Yeah. Uh, and this is a, a great transition to the next question. And before I get there, I think everyone should pause the podcast and go follow Ashley on LinkedIn. Like I already said, there's a link in the episode description. Um, and so I already know some of the answers to this question because of your content on LinkedIn. Literally, I remember three things I need to do to my resume um, from one post you made. Yeah. Uh, but the question from Instagram is, how can you frame your experiences in academia to make them seem applicable to UXR positions? Yeah. So I, I mean, like, like you said, I just, I just uh, posted yesterday, I think about this. Um, Cause I've, I've seen a lot of resumes from academics that sound like sound too much like CVs. And I think yeah. the, the big, um, and I'll, I'll, I'll plug another resource that I really like. So beyond the preface story, it has a wonderful podcast and basically everything I learned about, applying and finding non-academic jobs. I learned from this podcast. I actually found them back when I was a grad student three years ago and super, super helpful. So um, I would listen to the whole thing <laughs> if you're interested in finding a job outside of academia. But um, I think the big thing is people tend to focus, academics tend to focus too much on their subject matter expertise mm. and not um, as much on their skills and so I think being able to really quantify your experience as much as possible um, and think about what's, what skills you have, how can I quantify these skills, and really just focusing less on like what you studied and what your findings were, because like that's not what companies care about. Like Meta doesn't care that I like studied babies for 10 years. Yeah. Like they, they want to know that I can actually like that I've led projects end to end and that I have experience with like these different research methods. Um, and, you know, but my child development background, at least for like this particular role, like no one cares. Um, and, yeah. but that's, that's different. Like if I were applying for a research scientist position at like a child development research Institute, then I would highlight that that's my background. Um, so I think there's also a lot of tailoring that you have to do with your resumes to specific jobs. Um, but I would definitely like focus on your research skills if you're applying to UXR positions um, and make sure that and like don't have a longer than a page for your resume. I've just I've seen resumes that are that are too long and the resume is, you know, it's just a it's just an invitation that the hiring manager can use to like, oh, this person seems like they meet our basic qualifications. Like, let's talk mm -hmm. to them more and then they can talk to you more and then you can tell them about like all the details of things if they like really want to know that information. So stop, stop listing your publications on your resume is also my, yeah. <laughs> which is hard. Cause like, I, I don't know. We like work so hard on our publications, but like no one really, no one really cares. You can just like, yeah. I just like link to my Google scholar on my resume. And if people really want Absolutely. to like 
read them, they can, but I don't expect that anyone will. Yeah. Yeah, I, I definitely feel that. And whenever I was transitioning from academia to, to industry, it uh, it felt like a sunk cost. Yeah, it was like a sunk cost fallacy of like, I've worked so much to be able to like show my street cred of, you know, oh, yeah. I got this grant or, or these publications or whatever. But at the end of the day, employers just want to see skills. Yeah. And I, and I, yeah, and I, yeah, and I, I will say that, you know, I won, I won a couple of dissertation awards and I do have those on my resume, um, but they're in like a very, a very tiny section, but mm-hmm. I like, I just, I did I didn't want to leave those off. So you can like use your own judgment, but my resume is still like just a page. Um, and, and especially if you're applying to a researcher position, it's like, I've seen like people list like every role that they've ever had, even if it's not actually a research role and it's not like relevant for the job. So I would just really think about, you know, what skills does this job ad want me to have? And then really constructing your resume to show that you have those skills. Yeah. Yeah. And if you want to see Ashley's resume, you can find it at uh, ashleyruba.com. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. I have my, like my current resume is on the first page and then I also have a resources tab and that has the resume that I use to apply to UX jobs. And then I also, if grad students are interested, it has like every application for every award that I've won as grant applications, dissertation award applications. Um, and so if like job market applications, like everything. So if you need examples of anything, like I just mm-hmm. put it all up there because I find that to be really, I found all of that to be really useful when I was applying for these things too. Yeah, definitely. So, and I'll also put a link to that in the um, description of this episode. So uh, I know we're running near the end of our time together. I have just a few last questions. Uh, One that I always like to ask and often forget to ask, Mm -hmm. what is the like average or expected pay range for a UXR position? That's a good question. Um, so my first UXR position, I was paid a hundred grand a year. And I think that was pretty like, that's what I was aiming for. I feel like I had job offers that were between like a mm-hmm. hundred and one twenty, And then right now at Meta, I'm paid one sixty, And that's, and I also note that I live in Seattle, which is why that, that number seems like particularly high, but the cost of living in Seattle is really high. Um, but I will note that for both of those positions, like I was not full time. And so the amount of money that I could make Hopefully this year when I have a full-time position, like I could see myself easily making over 200 grand in like total compensation for a UXR position. Um, and those numbers like blow my mind as someone who made like 50 grand yeah. as a postdoc and like 25 grand as a grad student. Yep. Yep. Uh, thank you for sharing that. So uh, the next thing I had, which you touched on a little bit already, but Courses, certificates, and portfolios. Mm-hmm. Do you think these are necessary? Do you think they should be skipped? What are your thoughts? Uh, so definitely don't do a boot, boot camps. Don't don't do boot camps. Um, I'm out. I'm out on boot camps. I think they're 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 like, oh, we'll teach you everything you need to know about like UX in uh, like six weeks, and that's just not. I think they just like churn out a lot of people, and there's not actually like all of people's resumes and portfolios end up looking exactly the same and. Like I said, you can teach yourself like everything you need to know about UXR from podcasts and books and all of that. Um, and then from actually, you know, getting your first job and doing them. Um, in terms of certificates, like there's no certificate that will get you a job. Like if that's a way that you want to learn about UX, you can. But I'm also kind of like out on paying for anything um, because I do mm-hmm. truly believe that you can teach yourself whatever you need to know. And then in terms of portfolios, like I never made one um, and I didn't have to for the jobs that I applied for. But I think that um, it is something that you could potentially do. I think it's more of a way to signal like that, you know, how to tell a story with your data and then also a way to showcase the methods that you have experience using. And so if you do have experience using qualitative methods, like you can you can put in you know, brief case studies and a PowerPoint presentation. I don't think there's any harm in doing that. But like I said, the the jobs that I, the UXR jobs I applied for didn't necessarily require a portfolio. And I think 
like for me, I don't even think I can make a portfolio now because at both my previous job and my current job, all of my work is wrapped up in NDAs. So I actually can't talk about the specifics of what I'm doing to anybody (laughs) outside of my job. Um, so, so I think like mixed, I've heard mixed things. Um, but I think it's more important to like have a solid resume and to actually start networking with people on LinkedIn and like building relationships. And if you are a grad student doing an internship, I think those things are more important. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Uh, nearing the end, what do you wish you would have known about industry in general or UXR specifically when you were a grad student? Yeah, I think as a grad student, as a postdoc, you hear a lot of myths about industry and you hear, you know, you have no flexibility, like you have no autonomy. Um, You're just like working for a boss. You're at a desk nine to five. And like, and this is coming from professors most of the time, tenured professors who have never actually like worked outside of academia. And all of that is just not true. Um, I have just as much freedom and flexibility in my current job as I had in academia, if not more, um, because I feel like I actually am valued for my work. And I, you know, I'm Mm -hmm. like currently working from home, but like if I want, I can go into the office, which is really nice because I get free meals and snacks, which I never thought I would. It's it's actually like really nice. Um, And I didn't think that that's something I would appreciate. But I think I would just like talk to other PhDs who are actually in the job that you're interested in. And like, they're the ones who are going to tell you what it's really like and how it compares to academia. And so as maybe like well-meaning as some professors are, they're not the people to talk to if you're trying to move out of academia because they just don't most of the time, unless they've actually like worked in a non-academic role, they have no idea what they're talking about. Um, So I would, I would recommend like talking to other to other PhDs to get like the real, the real scoop and to stop, you know, kind of like believing these myths that are just super pervasive that academia is like the one best job and everything else like pales in comparison. It's just not for me. Mm-hmm. I just, it's just not true. Yeah. 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 Makes sense. Okay, Ashley. So we are here at the end. Uh, was there anything that you wanted to talk about that we didn't go over? Um, yeah, I don't, I don't think so. I would, I would just, I would really encourage like all grad students to at least consider non-academic jobs. That's definitely like a big regret I had. And it's funny because when I was a grad student, I actually had the opportunity to do an internship at Oculus, which is now Meta Reality Labs. And I said no, because I was like, I'm going to be a tenure track faculty member. Like, I don't need this. Like, this is a distraction. And then here I am working at Oculus like like seven years later. Um, so I would just keep your options open because even if you even if you want to be a faculty member like I did really badly, it may not work out and like that's absolutely okay. And so I would just keep your options open um, because you never really know like what life is gonna is gonna throw at you and like maybe you'll change your mind. It's just really um, that's like my my biggest regret is that I didn't. I, I just yep. like had the the blinders on and didn't really consider anything else. Yep. Yep. Feel that one. <laughs> um, okay. So how uh, do you want people to follow along, get in touch? Anything yeah. Like that? Um, so I, I had originally started building my platform on Twitter, but I've actually started moving to LinkedIn and my um, like, kind of surprising like how quickly my platform has grown there so I would definitely like yeah. recommend following me on LinkedIn um because it's been it's been like fun to see um I don't know like PhDs kind of like coming out of the woodwork a little bit where mm. they're like oh I never thought about like posting about my career transition before and I'm like why not like so many people want to know um and so I yeah. think I'm I'm hoping that as more people start talking about it particularly on LinkedIn it's become more normalized and people have the resources to make their own transition. So definitely LinkedIn is like the the place to follow me. And you can follow me on Twitter for like maybe some of my hotter takes about academia, but, uh, but like LinkedIn for sure. Yeah. Very cool. All right, Ashley. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I have just one last question for yeah. you. 
What is one thing that you think grad students should consider doing before they graduate? Um, other than make a LinkedIn profile. <laughs> um, I don't know. That's a good question. Um, yeah, I would, I would say just like, don't, don't like spend, like don't work that much in grad school. I think it's like, yeah. I had really firm work life boundaries when I was a grad student. Like I really, I didn't work nights or weekends unless it was, you know, my last year of grad school and I had, was like trying to finish my dissertation, but like my best times in grad school were hanging out with my friends outside of grad mm -hmm. school. And I think it's, I don't, don't like waste your youth on unpaid or underpaid labor, like go out and hang out with your friends and have fun. Um, yeah. because yeah, life's too short just to like work all the time unless you like really want to, but you don't have to. Um, there's a really toxic overwork culture in academia and you don't have to buy into that. I didn't. So, and you don't have to either. Awesome. Thank you so much, Ashley. I really love this conversation yeah. and I can't wait to share it with folks. Oh yeah. No, thanks for, thanks for having me. It's been fun. Folks, thanks for tuning in to the Grad School Sucks podcast. I hope you got a lot out of my interview with Ashley today. If you did end up enjoying today's episode, please consider leaving a rating or review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Be sure to check out the description of today's episode for links to Ashley's LinkedIn and Twitter profiles. Definitely give her a follow if you want to get great tips on how to prepare yourself for a job in industry. As always, I'm your host, Matt Carlson, and I look forward to bringing you another great episode next week. See y'all next time. So, Ashley, your first question. Okay. What is your spirit animal? My spirit animal? Mm-hmm. Um, that's a good question. Um, I really like ducks. Maybe that's so weird. <laughs> That's, uh, I feel like I had a very spiritual experience watching some ducks at Green Lake in Seattle like many years ago when I was in my first year of grad school. And hmm. I don't know. I just really – ducks are super calm and chill and yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Ducks. I don't think I've heard that one before. Yeah. Um, okay. So second question, second warm-up question. What would you say is your real-life superpower? So not something you want to have, but something you actually have. Oh, boy. Um, real life superpowers. I think, I think like my writing ability has carried me very far across yeah. my entire career. Um, I've been thinking about that lately as I've been writing more content for LinkedIn. And I think just be as an academic, I really liked writing. So I was able to churn out so many papers. And I think it's just so it's a nice medium to be able to communicate and connect with people. Um, yeah. So I'll say I'll say that. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, and I w I will say it later on, but you know that is how I found you. I know yeah. I said it before we started recording, but was your LinkedIn post, mm -hmm. um, which we'll definitely plug more later. At the last question is, so if you had the ability to teleport to a place anytime you wanted and then you could teleport back but it had to be the same place every time what would that place be oh i mean i love i love berlin i would love to just be able to mm. like teleport to berlin and like i have a lot of friends who have moved there too who are kind of more in the who are like djs i really like going out and dancing to techno oh, um and so obviously berlin is the place to do that so if i could just teleport to berlin and like go out dancing and then like come back to seattle that sounds amazing yeah yeah that'd be awesome 